Lord, as we come before you, we come to texts like this. We come to texts in which there's this battle. Lord, there's judgment. There's victory. There's a lot of things in this text, Lord, as we see that might drive us either to hope or even, um, Lord, to despair. What I pray, God, is that your spirit would show us why in you we have much reason to hope. We have much reason to leave here this morning encouraged. But, Spirit of God, you are the, the only one who can open our eyes to see. Lord God, you're the one who can show us what's true, that can enable our eyes to have sight on this truth. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would make the cross large for us and central, that we would see, we would see your great love for us at the end of Revelation 19. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we talked about hope. For many people, though, hope can be hard to come by, right? And I think increasingly, even if, as you look at things like Pew Research data, as you, as, if you were to watch any of like the Sunday morning talk shows, you know, or hear snippets from it after church, and see some of where like the American public is at, where our culture is at in terms of hope, there's a lot of hopelessness in the world. Um, and that's why I think the writings of men like J.R.R. Tolkien have been so popular, not just in, certainly in their time initially, but then even more so uh, for future generations in which there's been this tradition of passing off to our children these stories that are filled with hope for the reader. The return of the king, right? These stories that have as their trajectory a beginning in which there's this hope of a return of a king who's going to bring all wrongs to rights in the future. And in the stories, two things are happening. Number one, the reader is invited into hope. The reader's invited to take part in that, to believe that there is such good to be done in this world that I'm reading about. There's this future hope that's to come. There's these wrongs to be righted, and I'm invited into hope. But I'm also invited to read the problems, the, the, the wrestlings, the struggles, the conflict from which, within each of the characters as it relates to actually believing that hope. Like, you, you really do see how, whether it's men of the West in Gondor or any of the other um, creatures that desire for Mordor to fall, they know that there's this saying that the king is to return again, right? To make wrongs right, you know, to bring about future redemption. But you see this doubt. You see this wrestling in each one that I think you see today too. Like I said, hope can be hard to come by, but I'm not talking about the more inexpensive definition of hope in our time. You know, um, we say... You know, I hope my team goes to the Super Bowl, right? For the vast majority of us in this room, though, um, we're not talking about what we actually think is going to happen. For most of us, we're talking about something that we want to happen, but that we really don't believe will, at least under current ownership, right? Um, That's kind of the idea. If somebody says, man, I hope you're right. If you say that to somebody or if somebody says that to you, Nine times out of ten, what are you expressing when you use that phrase? I hope you're right. Usually, it's a pessimistic reply to an optimist, a more optimistic statement, right? So somebody says something optimistic, and you say, I hope you're right. But what, is that, what does that signal? It means that you don't actually think it. Maybe you want that thing to happen, but you don't actually believe that it's going to happen. Listen, the way we use the word hope in our culture actually ironically signifies how little hope we have in our world. You know, like, the way we use the term hope demonstrates how little hope we actually hold out because we typically use it in context where we don't actually believe the thing is going to happen, but we're just holding out hope. Biblically, though, hope is expressed as a certainty of the thing that's been promised, that it will come to pass. That's very rare. It's very rare to capture that in... um, the use of the term today is, is, I think one of the reasons for that um, in all of these cases is that it can be so difficult to find hope in the midst of troubling circumstances. You know, it can be so difficult to believe in said future reality 
Because surrounding circumstances can be so powerful in making it difficult for me to actually believe that the thing's going to come to pass, right? And, and on an ultimate level, what it comes down to is trust in the one who's promised the thing. Trust that they're going to actually be able to deliver. Like, okay, so just, as the, just that running illustration, I'm a Bears fan. The ones who tell me that we'll be in the Super Bowl soon, um, I have no reason to trust them. I think we, we might in the future be in a Super Bowl. It'll be lucking out. You know, if we get lucky, if the right circumstances might just so happen to fall our way during a time, but at no point do I believe that it's going to be because, oh, trust the process and the plan. No, I've seen the process and the plan too many times to know um, that I'm not going to trust that. It comes down to an idea of trust. Do we trust in the one who's made us the promise, who said that the thing in the future is actually going to come to pass? So for the church today, the idea that in the end Jesus wins, that he's victorious, that he will reign forever with his people in glory, and that you can actually bank on that hope. That there's a certainty related to it. That kind of hope can be hard to cling to in our time for the church of God. And the reason seems to always be, again, tied back into our circumstances, because when you look at the direction of the world we live in, you know, as you look at circumstances in the surrounding world, the direction of even, even the church in the West, when we always think that maybe the beast has finally been slain only to see him rear his ugly head again and again and again, and I'm referring to past chapters that we've preached in Revelation, right? When it always seems like the world order that's violent, that violently stands against Christ and his people has been thrown down only to watch it rise up again very quickly, when the war to end all wars actually leads to another war just a couple of decades later that was worse than the first one, the one that was supposed to end all, When the surrounding world seems to constantly threaten those who hold historically orthodox interpretations of Scripture and demean them and paint them as threats to society, when we watch our friends whom we love, our believing friends, those whom we've gone to church with, those whom we've prayed with, those whom we've opened the Scriptures with, when we watch our friends who at one point claimed faith in the gospel turn away from the gospel they once believed, become deceived by the false prophet, and the ways that we read about in Revelation 13 start to twist the meaning of Scripture in order to fit the world around them that they might might have acceptance in this world. When that's happening around us, man, it can be difficult to hold out hope in Christ, to, to hold hope in Christ. But Revelation was written for precisely this reason. And to precisely an audience in even more of a challenging uh, set of circumstances for believing in that hope. Realizing then that it's not our circumstances that actually shape the way that we live as Christians. It's not our circumstances that actually even shape whether or not we can hope in Christ. But rather it's what we believe about our future. And that comes down to whether or not we, again, whether or not we trust the one who tells us that these things will come to pass. And the vision of the future in the chapter that we find ourselves in this morning paints for us a picture of one whom we can trust. We can trust this one who is to come. We can trust the promise that's being made because of who it is, right? Paints us a picture of victory for the people of God because the one who comes is victorious, He's trustworthy and he's good. And we see that in two sections of the text this morning, so this is our outline. In the first section of the text, we're going to get an introduction to the one who is to come. We're introduced to the one who's coming to rescue his people, and then in the second half of the text, we see what he does when he comes again. So, in other words, all throughout Revelation, we have... Uh, this promise, after promise, after promise, that God will come for his people, even in the midst of, and to a great extent, um, the, the future of growing tribulation in the world. Great and growing tribulation. And now we see him. Now he's arrived. We see the one who is to come. So we see, number one, who he is, if you're taking notes, verses 11 through 16. Number two, what he does. Who he is and what he does. So who is he? Verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So let me just stop there really quickly and explain that throughout Revelation, 
there are really three ways you can read Revelation as a whole. I'm not talking about views on what's called the millennium. We're going to get to that next week, and I think there's really more four views, generally speaking, that people have of this thing, these thousand years that we're going to see in the text next week. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we approach Revelation as a whole. Generally speaking, there's three different views, and you know, all of them have a certain kind of merit. One is called the idealist view, and this is the, the view that we can read all of Revelation in kind of a, an allegory for the church to understand that the things that we're reading about are actually happening all around us. Another way, this is called the preterist view, is to see that all of this, or most of this, actually happened in past history. Uh, so for most preterists, the vast majority of what we read about in Revelation uh, happened in the first century A.D., happened specifically in 70 A.D., as it relates to the Jewish wars. And then there's a futurist perspective that says, actually, these are prophecies of what is yet to come. Okay, so all three of these have a lot of merit. And I don't think, um, so strictly speaking, and I think maybe you've gotten the sense of this as I've preached through this text, if you're new here and, and you're kind of getting, wanting to get a sense of how we've arrived at where we've got this morning, I encourage you to go back and listen. Um, just because all of Revelation kind of helps paint this picture and make this argument for us. But I'm not strictly speaking an idealist, a preterist, or a futurist. In other words, there are texts that we come to that I think very much have an idealist framework. One in which I see uh, you're, you're either given a mark of the beast. You're either, everyone in, in human history either has a mark of the beast or the seal of God. Like if, if there's one pushback that I want to give to specific futuristic uh, interpretations, this is the big one. Like if there's, if there's one that maybe I would hope that I can sway you on, it's this. It's that I, th- I think this is really the main point. Everyone either has a, a mark of God or a mark of the beast. Which one do you have? It's not saying that a certain subset of people at the very end of history will have some kind of mark or microchip or, or, or vaccine or whatever, and that thing is going to be a sign of the end times. No, it's saying, like, look, everybody's marked. Who are, you, who are you following? To whom do you give authority? Right? So we've been over this a lot and we'll even get into it more today. But there is some, some of that idealistic spiritual interpretation for today's church. At the same time, a lot of this happened in the first century AD. I have talked a lot about how we, we root a lot of... This isn't something that we can dehistoricize and pull out of our, our, the first century historical context. And if we have an, an, an interpretation of Revelation that at any point... Modern readers would understand, but ancient readers would be oblivious to, or even that it would run counter to the way that they would have thought about it in the first century. We're not reading our Bibles the way that we read them anywhere else, you know, where we're supposed to be discovering what is the, the original author saying to his original audience that we might draw application. All right, so I do think a lot of this has history implications in the first century that a first century audience would have heard, and they would have been thinking about that, and we'll see some of that in our text. And then finally, I think... There is a glorious future. I see future in Revelation. I see this pointing forward to some... I see even uh, these, these um, spiritual readings of the mark of God, the mark of the beast. I see that concluding, right? I see the things that happened in the past being a sign of something in the future that is yet to come. I, I see future. I'm not strictly speaking either. So what am I? Well, hopefully... I'm making, we're, we're together making these decisions, not on the basis of forcing some outward structure onto the text, but rather coming to each text and allowing the text to speak for itself. Like, like being Christians who are shaped by the word instead of shaping the word by some kind of a system that we're imposing upon it. So when we come to Revelation and we read, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, Right? One sitting on is called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. The idealist says, well, this is uh, chapter 19. The end of chapter 19 is actually an allegory for the gospel going out in the world between the advents. You know, that the gospel goes forward, that it conquers. You know, it's just an allegory for in the church age, the gospel being proclaimed. And the preterist looks at it and says, okay, this, this battle was fought in the first century. 
This is what Jesus is telling first century Christians to hold on for as Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD and then the church age begins in which um, God's people are proclaiming the gospel. But as I get to verse 11, I'm puzzled because on the one hand, the Armageddon battle that we see throughout Revelation and in apocalyptic literature is always understood to have symbolic and ongoing recurring effects rather than only a single future event. There is a sense in which I do think this speaks to more than just a single future event. Having said that, one thing that's true about Armageddon battle in in apocalyptic literature, especially in the scriptures, is that it always signals a coming future reality of the reign of Christ. So when I get to verses 11 and 12, I have a very difficult time not seeing here a depiction of a future, primarily, a future bodily, physical return of the one who's been promised throughout the book that now, in a very unique way, in a way not explained in other places in the scriptures, is revealed to us. So let me read that again in the rest of this section. Then I saw heaven opened, right? So this is like the, 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 the sky rolling back like, uh, like a scroll like we saw in other various places. We see a fuller picture now. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And um, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped with blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations he will rule them. With a rod of iron he will tread with the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Friends, this passage, I believe, is is describing the second coming of Christ. This is the return of the King. This is an eventual future promise for God's people. That in a sense, yes, Christ came for his people at the cross. And in a sense, yes, That kingdom was inaugurated at the cross and resurrection of Jesus so that we are already in his kingdom in that way. He he reigns over us by his grace. But here we have a picture that goes beyond that, a picture of his return that's known in theological vernacular as the parousia. It's a Greek word used throughout the New Testament to mean a kind of coming again. Right, especially used by Jesus in Matthew 24 to signify his own second coming. And here John makes certain that we understand who this rider on the white horse is. In order to see that though, okay, we need to remind ourselves that this is now the second time that John has seen a vision of a white rider. And when we see what John is actually doing here, I think we have a really hard time saying chapter 19 is relegated only to the past. This is only speaking of a past event. Why? Well, if you remember, on the first Sunday of Advent, we had this uh, unusual for us Advent text in which we, we saw, you know, the scroll that nobody could open that was finally given to the Lamb, right? John was weeping because nobody in heaven or under heaven was able to open the scroll. And the Lamb, though, nobody was worthy, but the Lamb was worthy. So the first seal is broken and we hear, we hear this voice Come, right? Advent, mean, it's, it's from this Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. So you hear this loud proclamation of come and what happens? And I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And, and we said back then, if you remember, that some interpreters see this in chapter 6 as Christ. In chapter 6, and the gospel going out to the world, in part because of what we're reading here in 19. And they read 19 and they see this imagery of the white horse and they say, Well, then how could you possibly mistake 6 for anyone else? It it must be referring to Jesus in chapter 6. And actually, those interpreters often see this is why they see 19 as this allegory for the gospel going into the world. They see that in 6 and they see that here as well, but the majority have it. I think, correct in saying that Revelation 6, in Revelation 6, we actually have the first of several unique judgments. These are called the sealed judgments, if you remember. 
You have the first of several kinds of judgments that the earth faces in the first century, bringing to mind for the first century reader the Jewish wars, right? Um, and the judgments that, that, that are faced by people on the earth between the advents as well throughout human history and a judgment that is yet to come. In other words, in the first century, as a judgment against Israel that Jesus said would happen, Throughout the ages, as Jesus also said would happen, wars would come upon mankind because the rulers of this world ravage and rampage for selfish gain, as as Tom Schreiner describes it. So these are nations and rulers like Titus in the first century marching into Jerusalem in military conquest. So if you visit Rome today, you will see uh, the, the Arch of Titus. And inside the Arch of Titus, erected in the first century, Inside the Arch of Titus, you see these images of a rider on a horse leading his army out of Jerusalem who is carrying plunder from the temple, right? Um, this, is, this is the first century context. This is the imagery the first century readers have in mind when they see this rider on this white horse. And we also see it in countless other rulers throughout history who proudly marched against the other nations in order to make war. But here in Revelation 19... Now we see a different white rider, and I think this is precisely why John describes the rider in the terms that he does. So I think what John is saying, if you can give me some liberty with the text a little bit to to make my case, I think what John is saying is this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. So then what does that make his readers think of immediately? Chapter 6, right? Um, The first seal judgment. But then John continues, and he's saying, but... The one sitting on this white horse, as opposed to what you read about in chapter 6, on this white horse we see one who's called faithful and true. So unlike those in chapter 6 who came uh, on a white horse, signifying rule and majesty as a great warrior, this writer actually has true authority and rule over all things. They were unfaithful throughout history, as false riders, and any authority that they thought they had was actually an illusion, right? Because they gained their authority from this white rider. But Jesus is the faithful and true rider. He's good, he's just. He truly possesses all authority, and so he continues, and unlike them, in righteousness, this rider judges and makes war. I think there's more evidence for that to come, but he's saying, where is the rider in chapter 6? Ravages and rampages for selfish gain... John's saying that this writer in 19 makes war and judges in righteousness, and he does so rightly. Well, how does he do that? John tells us by giving us no doubt at all who he's talking about here. Um, Taking us back to the description of Christ in chapter 1. Stating that his eyes were like a flame of fire, and we we looked at that in chapter 1. We said that it refers to his all-knowing gaze that pierces below the surface. And this is actually how he, unlike past rulers, unlike those who've marched, making ravaging for selfish gain, right? Ravaging and rampaging for selfish gain. Unlike them, unlike the world that judges with partial knowledge and vision on only a surface level, Jesus knows all and sees all with a gaze that, that extends directly into the human heart. He's a good judge. He wears many diadems, just as Satan and the beast were adorned with diadems in their attempt to ape God, to mimic him, to set themselves up as God to the world around them, a false and unholy trinity. But here we see the true king. And he has a name that's known only to himself. What does that mean? Well, interestingly enough, in the ancient world, to know someone's name was to have a a certain kind of authority over them. It was to have the ability to manipulate them to a certain extent. In other words, to exercise control over them. It was to be the one in the position of control. So if you remember from places like Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob is wrestling with the Lord, what happens? Well, Jacob's trying to dominate him. He's trying to exercise authority. And so he demands to know his name. And he doesn't tell him. But actually, he names Jacob Israel. He's the one who extends the name. The angel of the Lord does not disclose his name in the book of Judges. He would only say that it's wonderful. That's because he's the one with authority over us. It's not us who has authority over him. Now, of course, we know. We know Jesus' name in the sense that he's disclosed himself to us. 
Like God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. He's revealed himself to us in human history. He's revealed himself to us in his written word that we might know him. But it's because he revealed himself to us. Right? We don't have the kind of knowledge about him that he has about us. We don't have the kind of knowledge about him that would enable us to control or manipulate or put him under our authority in which we get to decide who he is and what he does or doesn't do. We don't get to deconstruct this God. This God deconstructs us as we're going to see in a moment. He's the one in control, not us. He gets to call the shots, not us. He knows our name. In this sense, we don't know his, except to the degree that he's made it known to us. Because in the next verse, we see his name. Right? More evidence, right? In, in, in verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the word of God. That's so apocalyptic. No one knows his name, and his name is the word of God. Right? He's a lamb who's also a groom. You know, this is how apocalyptic imagery functions. Why? Because on the one hand, it's trying to tell you that he has authority over you, not the other way around. But on the other end, it's trying to tell you that he's revealed himself to you. And he's revealed himself to you specifically as one with a robe dipped in blood. That has something of a twofold meaning. It's meant to trigger the memory of its readers in the first century back again to the Old Testament as John does so well throughout Revelation, right? We've, how many times have we actually gone back in our times together and quoted an Old Testament text that's absolutely the referent of what John's pointing to? Many times. But how many times in Revelation does John directly quote the Old Testament? Zero times. Having said that, he uses imagery that's indisputably pointing them back to these specific references. So, in Isaiah 63, we read about Yahweh's garments being splattered with blood in the judgment of Edom. It says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And the Lord answers, says this, I have trodden in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The verse after this, actually, Isaiah calls, calls this the day of a vengeance against God's enemies, but also because of the year of redemption for the people of God. And this is what we see here. On the one hand, there's vengeance. We see that Jesus returns to bring about what we read about in the first half of, of chapter 19 when the people of God praised him for what? Avenging on the world the blood of his servants, the blood of the saints. In other words, as Tom Schreiner writes, the judgment of the wicked, which stains Christ's garments with blood, constitutes vengeance for the wicked, but at the same time it signals redemption and deliverance for the people of God. You see both. And with that redemption, we actually see another meaning here that we'll come to at the end together. Because God's means of redemption isn't just to stamp out the wicked and then let his people, like, figure out the rest. Like, I'll, I'll come, I'll stamp out the wicked, and then I'll just, those who I've kind of chosen for myself, they can, they can do as they will. Why won't that do? Well, because his people would still be wicked. We all share the same fundamental problem. It's not that some people are wicked and some people are better than that. No, we all share the same fundamental problem for which Jesus now returns to judge the world rightly and justly. So, if that's true, if we all share the same fundamental problem, how can we find hope in this? Aren't we to be trodden with the wicked? We're going to get back to that question. For now, though, just notice that John refers to this writer as the Word of God. Remember who's writing this. This is the same author who begins his gospel account, which shares many of the same themes in Revelation, by the way, by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John went on to, to describe the first coming of that Word by saying that he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He describes then throughout his work as the, the, the purpose for his coming, that he was born in this world in order to die a substitutionary death for his people, and that this Word would then raise from the dead, conquering death, that he would come again. But this time when he comes... When, John, when the same author records another coming, another advent, a second advent, he doesn't describe this word putting on flesh as a baby in a manger or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But now rather riding on a white horse in all of his glory with the armies of heaven 
arrayed in fine linen behind him, white and pure, also riding white horses. Same description as the people of God that we saw last week, first half of, of chapter 19. Now listen, this is apocalyptic imagery, okay? So like, we have to understand, again, we don't have a lot of context for apocalyptic literature. We, we know about letters, we know about narrative. When we get to apocalyptic, first century readers would have been far more aware of this genre than us. This, so what we need to understand is, this isn't get, meant to give us a crude script of exactly how this battle is going to look. Just like when we looked through the seals and the trumpets and the bulls, they weren't meant to give you, oh, so when the oceans fill with blood, that means this seal is upon us. No, they're saying, real judgment is coming, and I'm going to use symbols to talk to you about the nature of that coming judgment. The same thing is happening here. We should no more expect Jesus to return on a literal white horse or for the armies of heaven to follow him on white horses galloping in the sky than we should expect him to literally have a sword coming out of his mouth to judge the wicked. These are symbols meant to tell us something about this coming. That Here's what I think it's telling us. It'll happen swiftly in a moment that Jesus himself will be returning, that he has all authority, he has all power, and that now he marches against his enemies. It tells us that rather than some literal image of what happens. Now, I'm not exactly sure who this army is describing that's following the white rider. A lot of different thoughts on this, and I haven't quite arrived at one. Um, It's probably both angelic beings and the saints of God in the first half of the chapter. You know, uh, but as we'll see, it's not saying that there's going to be an actual army of people who will fight God's enemies. Like when we think of two armies clashing, we think of like two groups of people rushing at each other and doing battle. But that's not actually what the text shows us. It rather, I think what it's doing is it's continuing to contrast those who follow Christ, verse 14, with those who reject him and stand against him with the beast. Those who are marked with the beast, those who are marked with the seal of God. So once again, we see the contrast set up, but when we look at verse 15, we see the one who does all the fighting. It's not like in the end, the saints of God are actually going to have to go out and slay the wicked. That's not what's happening here. Jesus does not need anyone else to fight this battle. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We're going to come back to that text next week. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So again, this brings us back to that wine press uh, judgment imagery of the Old Testament, Isaiah 63. But it also makes use of imagery from chapter 1, the double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ, representing, as we said, the word of God, comes to both cut and heal. It comes to extend salvation for God's people, but also to deliver judgment for those who either reject it or who twist it to make it mean whatever the world wants it to mean and to give it accolades. And here it refers to that kind of judgment. It says that with the sword he will strike down the nations. Why will he strike down the nations? Well, these nations are gathered now behind the beast who's deceived them. They're preparing for battle against Christ. They wage war against him. Again, this is not a picture of people who are just kind of minding their own business when Jesus returns and then are immediately filled with regret when they see the white horse and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, have mercy on us. Pleading for his forgiveness and mercy. These are in, Think about how this imagery paints those who reject Christ. They despise him so much that not only do they not want to be with him, but they want his destruction. They march against him. They want to destroy him. More on that in a moment, but, but that kind of contrast helps us identify this writer more completely. Who, verse 16, now calls the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because whether or not these people, these kings from the surrounding nations, realize it or not, whether or not those who march against him know it or not, The kings of this world that take their stand against him are actually under his authority and control. They will be ruled with an iron rod. Without any dispute, the one who comes is Jesus himself. This is the second coming of Christ. The return of the king. In prior moments in Revelation, we've seen, you know, very short retellings of the end. 
I would argue that the sixth seal is one of those moments where the sky rolls back like a scroll. I think that we see other areas where it's just, it goes completely dark. This is the eschaton. It's the end. But here in chapters 19 and 20, John gives us a fuller explanation of the end. And this is where we begin to see not only who he is, who this one is who is to come, but also now what he does. Verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and eat their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great, both small and great. Three things to say here by way of observation, and some of this we're going to get into next week. But first, this is a battle against those who stand against God in the end, right? And it begins with this angel calling with a loud voice from the sky to these birds that are flying overhead. And, the, and an invitation is given to a meal. Okay, an invitation is given for a supper. And I want you to think about that imagery, right? When was the last time we saw in the text an invitation given for a supper? Well, it was in the last set of texts. The angel said to me, write this. It's verse 9, same chapter. It's last week. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think there's a contrast here. We have, I think, an intentional contrast between this marriage supper of the Lamb, first half of 19, and then the great supper of God at the end of 19. Right? The marriage supper of the Lamb, those who stand with Christ behind Him, or those who've been slain by the wicked rulers of this world, they've been faithful to Christ to the very end, they will attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. They faced the wrath of the beast, while they were on the earth, but they will not face the wrath of God. They'll be redeemed and made new. But those who stand against God, who faced no wrath in this world because they sought acceptance from the world around them, they sought the acceptance of this world rather than the acceptance of God through Christ. They face no wrath from the Antichrist, but now they face God's wrath, and they're invited to a very different kind of... Actually, they're not the ones invited. They're the meal. They're the ones who are being consumed. Now that might sound like grisly imagery, but let me remind you, if you remember, this was in our text last week, the people standing with God, they were also a meal. They were consumed. Their blood was within the prostitute of Babylon who had feasted on them. The end of chapter 18 says this, in her, in Babylon, in this this world culture, was found the blood of the saints who had been on the earth. So these saints in the army of God, they faced wrath. They were consumed, but they faced the wrath of the Antichrist. They were consumed by the hatred of the world around them. Here, those who oppose God in in the army of the beast also face wrath, but they face the wrath of God. They're also consumed, but they're consumed by the birds that fly over the battlefield in final judgment. So again, the question that's being asked is, it's not, do you want to face wrath or not? The question is, in the end, whose wrath would you rather face? I know I keep asking, but we're going to keep coming back to it because I think this is at the heart of what God, God wants for us to know in the book of Revelation. That's the first observation is this contrast between these two suppers. Second, this contrast shows us that, you know, this isn't, An image here at the end of 19, I don't think, and I'll get into this next week, of absolute final judgment. Not yet anyway. In other words, those who will face destruction in this text are those of the armies of the kings and rulers of this world that stand against God who want to prevent his second coming in battle. This whole chapter has military overtones. The kings of the earth taking their stand against God with armies made up, according to verse 18, of captains, mighty men, horses, riders, free And slaves, small and great, all the men of these armies now stand against the Lord and His rule. They are the ones who have their flesh eaten. The saints that stood against this world order had their flesh eaten by Babylon. These men who now stand against the Lord of His return have their flesh eaten by the birds. And so, third, just more evidence that this specific judgment refers now to those who stand in battle against the Lord is this army 
behind the beast that gets eaten by these birds. The vision that John draws upon is the judgment of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. What happens there? Well, birds in Ezekiel 38 and 39, what happens? They're invited to gather for a sacrificial feast and eat the flesh and drink the blood of Israel's enemies in battle. Again, apocalyptic language to talk about Armageddon in the way that we said before. On the one hand, an ongoing recurring theme of judgment. On the other hand, a picture of a future judgment that's yet to come. It's a very grisly way of depicting God's victory over earthly kingdoms in this world that want to prevent His rule and authority. It depicts His victory over them. And so, in verse 19, set your eyes there with me. When John writes, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Here's what we see. We see the setting of the meal. That's the setting of the meal. This is a specific setting in this immediate context, not one imported from outside of 19, but right here in this chapter for this great supper of God. Jesus and his angels standing against the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies ready to wage war against him. And the angel is calling on the birds to be ready to feast against the army. Now that image of the birds feasting on the army... That has military overtones, not just in the Bible. It's common first century language uh, for the surrounding world, right? So, in fact, if you were to watch war movies that are set in the ancient world, you'll see the same imagery. Um, When the larger superior army of Agamemnon is gathered to dispense of the smaller, more modest army of Triopas to take his land by force, Agamemnon and Triopas, what happens? Well, they meet. Between the battlefields, as you often see in ancient war, they ride their horses out under a banner of negotiation. They get off of their horses and they walk to one another. And the first thing that Agamemnon does in order to signal the seriousness of this situation to Triopas is to make eye contact with him so he knows Triopas is looking at him. And then immediately moving his eyes and his arms skyward, motioning to the air to the birds who are already circling, invited by the presence of the armies knowing what this battle meant for them. And he simply says to them, good day for the crows. Good day for the crows. This is military judgment. That's what's happening here. This event described at the end of 19 that tells us more about the return of Christ is one in which the world order now stands against his rule and authority. They attempt to fight against him, but he's victorious and he's victorious in an instant. This is the idea here. It will be a good day for the crows because Jesus himself will entirely wipe out any army that stands against him. And that's exactly what we see in the text. The rider on the white horse is victorious, verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is another reason why I have a really hard time keeping this in the first century. Because there's a finality to this judgment. Right? In the past, the beast has suffered a fatal wound, only to rise up again later on, to the point where people just marveled at it. But here, they're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There's a finality to this judgment. The rulers of this earth who had both attempted to destroy and deceive the people of God, who had destroyed and deceived the people of earth, the Antichrist and the false prophet of the age are now destroyed by God himself. Babylon, the world order, the culture of the day, the beast upon which she rides, the rulers that oppose God's good rule are destroyed. And with them, everyone else who joined in this army against God's good rule are also destroyed. Verse 21, and the rest, meaning the rest in this army... There are three people present, the beast, kings of the earth, and the armies that are with them. So the rest, meaning the kings of the earth, the armies that are behind them, the armies that stand opposed to God, are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. I don't take this to mean that this is the final earth, the final judgment of every earth dweller. Not yet. I don't think the text demands that, and we'll talk about that more next week. But this is what he does. We've seen who he is. He's Christ. The second coming of Christ, the return of the king, 
what does he do? He judges and redeems. He, ju- he brings judgment against those who oppose him. He brings redemption and peace for God's people. And the point of the text this morning is simply to say this. Whereas the world order or culture of the day that stands against Christ in which we live appears at times to be winning. Right? It, it certainly appears to be winning to the culture. Which as we've seen marvels at, a, at that perceived victory to the point where they bow themselves down before it. To the point where some people, even from within the church, notice the uphill battle that they have to face against culture, and so they abandon the church. They abandon their faith. They, they attempt to deconstruct the God of the Bible so that they can come in line with the culture around them. Why? Because the culture appears to be winning. And sometimes it can even appear to be winning to God's people. And we can begin to lose hope and expectancy and fervor in our mission. But while this world order thinks of their rule and conquest as being on this white horse with crowns and and, and a bow with authority and control, with ultimate victory, while they often believe that they're victorious because of their current circumstances and because the beast seems to continue to rear its ugly head over and over again in this world, believers can know that this is just an illusion. Believers in Jesus can know that their ultimate victory will be given by the faithful and true white rider, the one whose rule nobody will be able to oppose. But then the observant reader might rightly ask, as we already did, and I said we were coming back to it, then what's our hope? How can we we find hope? That is to say, if the faithful and true will be victorious, and if he will bring ultimate judgment against sin in this world, what hope do we have that he won't judge us? What hope do we have? What hope do I have that when he comes to trod in the winepress of God's wrath, that my blood won't be poured out in judgment as it deserves? Well, our hope, my hope, is found in the other meaning behind this blood on the garment of the, the rider on the white horse named Faithful and True. There's blood on his garment. But think about this. Yes, there's, the blood on his garment, I think, is meant to... to have a first century reader have their mind go back to Isaiah 63. It's meant to have a reader of the scripture who knows the scriptures well to think about the wine press of God's wrath. Okay? I want you to think about this. This description of this rider on the white horse. So it starts in verse 11. And the judgment hasn't happened yet. This is actually prior to the judgment. And yet... There's already blood on his garment. Whose blood is this? Well, while we, we've seen the winepress of God's wrath already mentioned in the bold judgments, it, it fills the entire world in, it, in the final judgment. While we've seen God's wrath demand blood, here we see why we can trust Christ and why we can have hope in him. Why, why this God, why this promise, why this future hope that's made is trustworthy. Why you can have hope even in the midst of Horrible circumstances. Because instead of our blood being on his garments after judgment, his blood is on his own garments prior to judgment. His blood that was poured out in our place. His blood that atones for our sin. His blood that should have been our blood. His blood that though it was the blood of the innocent and perfect Messiah was shed on our behalf so that we could have the hope of eternal life rather than eternal judgment. It might bring to mind Joseph, right? who had garments that were dipped in blood, substitutionary. He, he, he didn't end up dying. Christ faced this judgment already, though. He did end up dying. Long before this battle is fought. This is the one who is promised to come to, for his people. And this is what this means. In chapter 19, make no mistake, friends, it is at the cross of Jesus Christ As you read the scriptures, if you're here and you're a skeptic of Christianity and you wonder what on earth is all this judgment about, if you're here and you wonder what's at the core of Christian thought, open your Bibles and read of the cross. If you're here and you're a believer and you struggle and wrestle with the judgment that we see throughout Revelation, open your Bibles and look to the cross. Because it's at the cross where we ultimately see both who he is and what he has done. Yes, in Revelation 19 we see who he is. The risen Christ returning to save and redeem. That's what he does. 
But all of that points us, has at its groundwork, has at its root, the cross of Christ where we see who he is. God entered human history, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah of God sent to save in this world, and we've seen what he has done. He took the wrath that we deserved upon his shoulders already, the blood that we should have spilled out in our own judgment that was spilled out by him already, so that all who trust in him and his completed work on our behalf might have life rather than judgment. Might be saved and redeemed and sanctified and in the end glorified. We'll get to that in the next several weeks. But this morning, we end our time together at the table by focusing here at the table on the central point of the passage. The table is the point. Christians find their hope in the body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for us. The reality of his death on our behalf so that we might have life in him so that when he returns we might be found among those who are behind the faithful and true who stand with him, who persevere to the end in our faith, who don't reject him for the world around us. And so as we approach the elements this morning spend time on introspection To what extent are we maybe as Christians tempted to embrace the world around us so that we don't face hatred from the world? To what extent are we tempted to maybe reject Christ? Reject what's written in the Word so that we might have acceptance from the world around us rather than being willing to persevere in the midst of that hatred from the world around us because we find our hope in something greater. We find our hope in a love so great that the Savior who came for us bled and died for us. So let's pray as we approach the table together this morning. Lord, as we think of these things, we repent. In our own hearts, we repent of any area in our life in which we're quick to abandon your word for the acceptance and love of the world. And we ask, Lord, that you'd fill us with faith in Christ, that we might persevere to the end. I pray, Lord, as we take these elements together, that as a body of Christ this morning, we would proclaim the gospel together, we would proclaim our faith in it together in such a way that we would encourage one another's hearts to keep going, to keep pressing on in our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.